And here we go. Welcome to the inaugural edition of Behind the Headlines. I'm Joe Shaw, the executive editor of the Express News Group, which publishes the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, and 2070s.com, along with Sag Harbor Express. And uh, I'm joined by my co-host, Bill Sutton, who's our managing editor. Morning, Bill. Morning, Joe. And uh, for our first uh, session of Behind the Headlines, we have uh, some terrific uh, folks on our panel. Uh, David Rattray, who is the editor of the venerable East Hampton Star. David, good morning. Hey, how are you, Joe and Bill and everyone? <laughs> uh, Joe Workmeister, editor at the Times Review Media Group. How are you doing, Joe? Doing great. Uh, thanks for inviting me on. And uh, local journalist uh, Gianna Volpe is continuing her journalism now on WLIW as the host of the very popular Heart of the East End radio show. And uh, good morning to you, Gianna. Good morning to you, Joe, and all of the rest of our esteemed panelists. Yes, ma'am. We uh, That's, uh, you know, just very briefly for folks who aren't familiar, we're basically picking up the torch from you. Uh, this whole concept started with uh, Bonnie Grice when she founded the, uh, yeah. the conversation on a weekly basis called Media Mavens. And uh, it really brought together folks from the East End's journalism community to have a conversation about what's going on. And we're going to try and do that going forward in a little more formal setting now. But that was always a very popular feature on the radio show, correct? Yes. And actually, it was something that I had always, as a uh, cup journalist at Review, uh, always wanted on. I actually, I was writing that, uh, although it's, it's a tough time to be talking about any of these things with um, what we've really got to talk about this show, but this September marks my 10th anniversary as a journalist, but next month makes eight years since missing my Media Maven's curtain call. <laughs> I was a reporter volunteering to dock the blizzard of 2013 with Times Review's now content director Grant Parpan, and I was never asked again or <laughs> adequately apologized enough for a second chance to be on the panel, but I wrote that the uh, the coolest thing about dreams is when you work hard, you care and you want something enough, they come true. So by 2019, I found myself not only being able to continue the segment in place of my predecessor, Bonnie Grice, at what was then WPPB, but I put my foot down with the boss for my second time about keeping the name Media Mavens to honor her it was an institution, it matched the Adam Baronello art behind the desk and Georgie Manu agreed we should. Uh, so I had said something to Dr. Smith like, uh, Wally, when a new political administration names their secretary of agriculture, they don't change the name of the Department of Agriculture. Um, <laughs> one thing I did change about Mavens was I really wanted it to have a rotating uh, panel of voices and to hear from everyone. And so I'm really actually, like, I couldn't be more excited about the fact that our new GM at what is now WLIWFM, Diane Michelli agreed with me that she was she wanted to make sure that it stayed um, variants and that everyone is involved and that it rotates that it's fresh and uh you know she took my advice when i said you know i i would like to support 27 speaks because at the time that um, mavens morphed into what the friday 
9 a.m. spot is now, which is a panel of, it's a surprise of guests. You don't, you never know who's going to be on. Um, I had, you, 27 Speaks had just been starting up mm-hmm. and I said I would like to support them. I even offered to put it, nest it in the Media Mavens uh, time slot. But I said, please talk to Joe Shaw. Well, um, we very much appreciate it. We'll pick up the ball and we're going to run with it the best we can. I just want to say I had a very similar experience to, to Gianna in that I had waited years and years and years for my invitation to be on Media Mavens. And finally, one, one week I got the call and I did the show with Bonnie. And I think it was the next week or two weeks later, she announced that she was leaving the radio station. Oh, no. And I thought, oh, I finally had made it. And, and now, you know, here we go. But then, Gianni, you had me on a number of times and, and that was and that was great and fantastic. So I'm happy to to continue this as well. Today is kind of the revenge of the Mavens then, basically, <laughs> is what's happening. David, yeah. I, I, I really want to talk uh, briefly for folks who aren't that familiar with why a show like this works. We really have an unusual situation on the East End in community journalism. And you and your family especially has, has been part of that for so long. Um, it, it really is an amazing place when it comes to community journalism on the East End, isn't it? Yeah, it's really true. I mean, if, I mean, what I tell people a lot, if, if there's, there's so much media coverage out here, just in print alone, that if a community just had one of our publications, it would be a lucky community. But then you've got, you know, you've got amazing journalism going on kind of everywhere. And, and, you know, and now you've got, um, really quality radio happening it, it's it's kind of it's it's astonishing how much ink gets spilled on a weekly basis <laughs> how many words there are about this place even year-round um and of course when 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 i was a kid growing up my parents ran the paper um there really wasn't any competition per se and and since then it's just it's just kind of mushroom um you know, with a few exceptions, it's kind of a miracle. We all get along as journalists and business, you know, owners. And um, I mean, I think for the most part in in what might be called kind of the serious news world, I, I think there's a sense of the more the merrier. Um, mm-hmm. That's I, absolutely know, true. And I mean, you know, maybe a little different among the glossies because they're so um, sort of interchangeable. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to sort of tell what, Hampton, what distinguishes Hamptons from, you know, one of the other ones, and they're all good, but, um, but I think as far as we go, there's certainly a sense of cooperation, mutual interest, and also, I, you know, this, I, I, you guys maybe have a different opinion, but it seems to me that because of the internet, people are reading so much more now that they're reading on Absolutely. their phones, they're reading all these different ways, they're just swimming in words, and so that in a way, as weird as it is, there's, there's almost more opportunity and more time for all of the, the different takes on a, on a regional story that we all might do. Um, so I think it actually feels less competitive in a weird way than the your stories than it used to. That rings true. I always, I always tell people we love scooping each other, but we also cheer each other on, yeah. I, I think, in a way. Joe, Joe Workmeister, you know, I know that our organization and your organization have teamed up quite a bit in the past and even during the pandemic, even more so, I think. Uh, that's unusual too, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's something, you know, I think we kind of sort of stumbled into a few years back. Um, You know, I I can remember a particular court case, I think it was, um, 
that it was on a Wednesday afternoon and we were both kind of scrambling, trying to get somebody to central islip. And I think I raced out there and, and we kind of worked together and, you know, f- uh, feeding some notes uh, to you guys. And, and I think that kind of, kind of sparked it a few years back. And then, you know, as, as um, you know, as we've gotten um, on these in the past few years, you know, you know, we kind of just, learned how it's uh, definitely beneficial in a lot of ways where we could be working on similar type stories. And, um, you know, we have limited resources and, and when it's uh, a good time to, you know, share, you know, certain interviews or, you know, uh, bits of information, you know, it, it can definitely help us both. And, and what I've definitely seen too, is, you know, I, you know, our paper and your paper um, in particular, uh, you know, maybe more so than everyone else on the, on the South Fork, I think we do kind of have unique audiences where, you know, a story that we can post can get really good traffic, even if it's something that you guys had actually posted, you know, maybe, you know, a few days earlier. And so it's kind of interesting how, um, you know, I don't think we necessarily, you know, um, you know, kind of block each other when, when we are doing that in terms of how many people are seeing the story, it just gets out to even more people when, when we're able to share like that. And uh, so, you know, I think, I think it's been a good thing. And definitely during the pandemic where, you know, it was uh, public, public service journalism that we were doing where we were sharing some stuff where, you know, I can remember one story you did in particular, where you can compile this big list of, you know, different numbers people can, um, you know, look up, uh, you know, to try to find information because there were so many different things going on that people were trying to figure out and didn't know what to do. And um, that was one thing you did that we ran as well, which is, you know, that's beneficial to everyone. Um, you know, so it only, it only helps readers uh, in, in both our areas. So plus yeah, I think it's, I think it's been great. Way. I'm sorry. Say again, Gianna. I said, plus it's the East end way. It is. I think <laughs> that's Definitely, the case. Yeah. Coming from it uh, from a freelance perspective, but I've always kind of, played nice with my fellow journalists, especially because, you know, we're, we're kind of all together. And, you know, if you're a jerk, then you're going to see them at the post office, <laughs> you know, in the bank and mm. you know, at the ice cream store. I think it is just the East End way. It's, <laughs> well, I, I wanted to give everybody a little bit of context on our first show about why this, why this is something that I think works really well out here in a way. But enough about us. There are headlines to talk about, and obviously the one thing, uh, we've had a week like, uh, you know, we scheduled this as our first uh, program uh, a month or two ago, and who knew that this would be the first week? Uh, We certainly have something to talk about, and that's all of the upheaval that's happening right now at the federal level as we begin to transfer uh, to... to, uh, to move into a new administration uh, of President-elect Joe Biden. So um, Joe and David, I have to say, our three uh, newspaper organizations all had editorials this past week about Lee Zeldin, our U.S. representative from the first district, and his actions last week in the Capitol. Uh, We, in our editorial, labeled him unfit for office as a result of those actions. Uh, David, I think the Star's editorial was headlined, Lee Zeldin must go. Uh, Joe, your newspapers talked about Lee Zeldin being fully complicit in uh, what happened last week at the Capitol. David, um, let's talk about the fact that when we sit down as editors, and I'm not sure how your organizations uh, do editorials. We have an editorial board that discusses issues before we sit down to put them together, and it's kind of a team effort. But those are the hardest editorials to write, aren't they, David? I mean, people I might, I think, have the misconception out there that we live for writing editorials 
like this that are that are really strong and and make strong statements like that. But they're the hardest editorials to write, I find. I, I think that's right. Um, and you know, in the case of something like this, uh, you know, largely. I'm sort of, we've sort of like a two-tier editorial board where I draft it and then circulate it after a conversation among sort of everybody who, who is knowledgeable. Um, it's usually a pretty orderly process. Um, you know, in the case of something like a Zeldin editorial, um, you know, this is one where I couldn't, you know, I, I'm sure you all face this too, is this idea of like, well, what can we say? What can we add to this that hasn't been said before that's going to make a convincing argument and yes, I think, I think, you know, I, at least speaking for myself, you know, we kind of knew where we wanted to go with this. We felt that Zeldin had, had already crossed a line and then persisted in crossing a line after the, the invasion of the Capitol building. Um, but writing it, I, I got to say, was, you know, I, I procrastinated and waited and I couldn't you know, I had a few sort of visual ideas about what, what I kind of wanted to express, but it was, this was probably the hardest and most procrastinated editorial of my career. It really, it's a peculiar thing because we know, we kind of know where you want to, I, I don't know if you kind of know where you want to go with the editorial, but getting there, that, that was, that was hard. Yeah, was really hard. That, that's absolutely true. Joe, you guys, um, I, I think we all sort of made a very similar point about um, why Mr. Zeldin is complicit in the events of last week. Do you want to talk about that? I think we all basically said uh, exactly what you guys said. Yeah, I mean, you know, this was kind of such an unusual uh, event that we actually posted um, an editorial, uh, I think, last Thursday, you know, the day after um, that attack on the Capitol, just because we wanted to get something out there, you know, kind of right away. Um, and, you know, we had an editorial in that, Thursday's paper that was already kind of outdated, you know, speak based on everything that happened Wednesday. And so, um, you know, that was kind of unusual in itself uh, for us to kind of put um, an additional editorial just right on the web. And, um, you know, it, it goes back to, you know, really when you look back on how things unfolded that Wednesday, um, you know, you had uh, Lee Zeldin kind of pushing people, you know, we're going to have this big talk on the Capitol. Um, earlier in the, in the week, he, he had had a tweet, something about how, I think he used the word haunting of, of what's going to, you know, the other side is going to feel, you know, after January 6th. And, and you look back and it's kind of like, he's, it's pretty ominous, you know, what he was sort of saying. And, uh, and, and at no point, obviously, has he ever been uh, critical of the president and, and his um, uh, continued, uh, uh, attempts to say that the election was rigged, that it's uh, was a stolen election. Um, he's never said anything to the counter, um, even if he, even if he specifically doesn't say that quite to the same degree. He never goes against it, and and so you know. And I think all gonna... three of us pointed out too that that he did that on the floor of the house even after the violence that took place, and I think that was what startled us more than anything. I think, I think there was a certain position that, that he took before all of that, but it's so much harder to defend once you see. And then, and then a lot of the same lies were, we, we had a piece this week uh, by one of our editors, Brendan O'Reilly, who Brendan really took the time to go through line by line, the speech that, that uh, Congressman Zeldin gave on the floor and really debunk 
so much of what he said and 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 uh, bill I, I so much of of that it was half truths and it was not the full story and it was mis misstating things that happened Th there were a lot of problems with this floor and, what, and what struck me i mean you said line by line and it, and it was <clears throat> it was actually absolutely every every line he he said i mean every you know every sentence that he said you know, we, 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 we examined and explored and, and found lacking in, in truth. I, I think we took some flack for, for, for using that phrase lacking in truth, but, but I, I think that, that that was so true. It was just so amazing to me. I mean, every single sentence in the speech. Like, was it, was it really all that surprising when you consider what was it? The first impeachment hearing, wasn't he part of that group? He was that, the, on the defense he, team. Yeah. He was on the defense that team. Yeah, that like stormed in. Though, do you remember that moment? He was one of the. Actually, I believe he was on that committee where the uh, Republican members entered the room and refused to leave. I think he was already yeah. in there because he was on that committee. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but yeah, his, but but but, clearly, but like and, but, but like Joe said, I mean, no, it wasn't surprising necessarily, but you would you would think that after the violence of Wednesday right. that there would be at least a tempering of what he was going to say, but he had that speech. Uh, um, it, it seemingly, he had the speech prepared and, and delivered it with, um, um, you know, with, with the same emotion that, that he would have used had that violence not, not occurred. And I think that but was what was. a Lieutenant Colonel, you know, yeah, it was. And I mean, I think the other problem is uh, that uh, he ended up casting the vote against the impeachment of the president and in doing so was given actually quite a bit of floor time, more than most of the, the members of the House on the Republican side were given. I think he was given uh, two and a half minutes and then got an extra 30 seconds, something like that, uh, and spent that time defending uh, Donald Trump's record, which, so th the question I have for you guys at this point, we need to acknowledge something, which is that in the first district that, that uh, Lee Zeldin represents, one of the things we lamented in our editorial is that we on the East End feel that we don't have a representative now because this is not someone who's representing the views that are prominent on the East End. I think that's fair to say. I think the East End tends to lean a little more left. But we have to acknowledge as, as editors and journalists that there is a large group of people in the first district who support Lee Zeldin 100%, who support President Trump 100%. And Lee Zeldin is representing uh, the people who put him in office to some degree because he did win re-election recently. How do we walk that line? I mean, I, I think we have to see that there's a large group of people in our readership, just as they're in the first district, who have these concerns and 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 are voicing them. David, what, what do we do with that? How do we meet the needs of those people too as as journalists? You know, it's a really, really difficult question, even absent the big lie. Um, but when you throw in, you know, Donald Trump's um, fabrications about the election being being stolen, um, you know, you have a you have a um, an audience in the first district of some size, I would argue it's not even probably a majority of the people who registered Republicans. Um, who are sort of willing to accept a post-truth reality. 
And, you know, what I wonder is, um, you know, can you, as a fact-based news organization, argue with, uh, present information to people who are not interested in the facts, um, who, are, who are willing to reject it? But here's an interesting thing that occurred to me well before all of this in these editorials, is I realized that, so we get these letters, from letters to the editor from sort of um, Trumpist, you know, people who live in, in, in East Hampton or Sag Harbor, or whatever. And I realized that they would argue something that we wrote in an editorial, just some ordinary statement of, of you know, about say Ukraine investigation or something. And I realized that they, did, they actually had never really been exposed to a straight up statement of what is understood as, as common fact, that they, their news sources really were the East Hampton Star, or one of the local newspapers and Fox. And so they were not actually conversant in the same set of realities that, that we all sort of assume that they were. And, and so I actually started to rethink our editorials a little bit to say, you know, I really do need to state, educate, state what we think of as the obvious. Yeah, you have to educate um, people as well as yeah. as giving your opinions. Yeah, yeah, given the yeah, given the given the context that we're referring to when we're saying, you know, Lee Zeldin um, you know, called President Trump's virus response phenomenal during the speech at, at the convention. Um, you know, one of these letter writers, these sort of far right letter writers we have, it actually not really dialed in to the White House, the administration's failings regarding the coronavirus preparation, because their news sources are, are really as polarized as, you know, the Star and Fox or the America Network or whatever it is. And that was a, a, a strange moment for me when I realized that as local newspapers, we have a weird kind of obligation now because of the fracturing of national news. We always used to turn into ABC, NBC, or CBS and watch one of the big anchors. We had agree upon, you know, sort of as a nation, an agreed upon set of facts. Um, what's weird is that we now, as local newspapers, become pretty much the only common news source within a community. And that is just a bizarre inversion of the way it used to be. Um, That's really interesting. Yeah. It's, been it's been working that way for a long time. I mean, uh, when I graduated J school in 2010, I remember that th it was already happening that people were dividing to find the news that they wanted to hear. And particularly uh, through this political administration, people started to do that even down to their social networks and people were stopping communication with people whose version of reality did not match theirs. And it's, it's like, it's almost like it's not a fracturing, it's, it's fractured. Hmm. It's one of the reasons why I sort of morphed the mavens to be this surprise uh, panel because I wanted people from different walks of life to learn how to respectfully listen and talk to one another and hear about what other uh, types of thinking were. It's, it's, I mean, that's the, the job of journalism is to listen. Like when you think about it, it's like uh, the letter to the other, like these are 
our readers. These are the readers. These are the people. And it's like, uh, yeah, the job of journalism is to give people the information that they need to make informed decisions, you know, to, to form a por- more perfect union or however you want to phrase it. But, you know, it's, it's, it, it really is. It's the, it's the build. It's a cornerstone of democracy that's been under a siege, um, particularly when you consider the rhetoric from the top uh, for years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm fascinated, though, by the idea uh, of what David said, Joe Workmeister. Uh, David, David's point that this is falling to us now to be, uh, I think, community journalism. We're the place a lot of people come now to have these conversations and to attempt to do that uh, there, there's an engagement between the, the left and the right in our newspapers, on our letters pages, that, that isn't happening in, in other media. It just doesn't. The, the, the other media, uh, I think Gianna is absolutely right. It's, it's siloed now where everybody, left and right, seeks a, a, an echo chamber uh, for, for their views. And it's falling to us to sort of be the bridge for that. And I, and I imagine that's true for you, and I, as the, the Times Review covering the western part uh, of the East End, you know, I think that's probably more true for you guys than, than anybody. Yeah, I mean, when you look at Riverhead, I mean, you know, Riverhead Town for sure leans toward uh, the Republicans. You know, Lee Zeldin got a significant portion of the votes in November's election uh, in that particular area for sure. And, and you know, definitely in our um, – you know, opinion pages, you know, we get a lot of, um, a lot of comments, uh, you know, people on these kind of national issues where they feel like this is kind of like one outlet where they can sort of get their views out aside from just posting on their Facebook or whatever it may be. And, and, and as of late, it definitely leans more toward, you know, people on the left kind of talking just because everything is more, you know, kind of leans toward them reacting to what's going on. But, you know, we are, you know, we will publish those letters from people on the right. And but it gets tough sometimes when when you're looking at a letter that you're like, wow, this makes no sense. It's totally Mm -hmm. crazy. If I just print it, then everyone else is going to be like, why are you printing this? This is crazy. But then if you don't, um, you know, that person's like, you're you know, not giving me my viewpoint. And you try to go back and forth with people. And it's really hard. And and now, I mean, I've even seen people. You know, maybe you guys get these emails too, but, you know, occasionally I'll get an email with somebody saying, you know, I'm canceling my subscription. You guys are too left. You're, you're too liberal. You're crazy. I mean, I got an email from somebody who said he'd been a you know, subscriber for, you know, 20 years or something and we're too liberal. And uh, now he's going to get his news from the Epoch Times. And, you know, that's that's his news source now. And my response was. Oh, okay, I, I've never seen an Epoch News reporter at Southall Town Board meeting. You know? <laughs> and you're you're not you were likely going to lose that person anyway. I think, but I you know what's yeah. interesting, Joe. I like you. I engage with people who write letters to the editor, and I I give really wide latitude to letter writers to make their points. I won't let people say things that are demonstrably false, and that's led to some engagements. Right. And I try and engage even the most the most. Uh, conservative letter writers, let's say, uh, I've engaged with them. They're not unreasonable people uh, when you engage with them offline. It's, it's really the rhetoric, I think, is, is part of what, what's the problem here is, is they, it's almost like a, a persona 
that people adopt for public language now. And I, I don't think that's a coincidence. I think that's, that's about the coarsening of, of our public uh, conversation in the last couple of years. I love watching engage with people on Facebook. I think you're, you, you do such a great job of really trying to communicate. Cause that's like the, the biggest problem that I, that I've had with watching people split is the fact that people aren't communicating anymore. They're just like talking at one another and there's no, you know, there's no, there's nothing happening. Both, and it's both, like, both sides are just so dug in that nobody right. hears that. No, no, right. no, there's no reasoning anymore, uh, you know, internally of, you know, maybe this person has a point or maybe, you know, or, or maybe I'm a little bit wrong. It's, it's just that, that constant, you know, I'm, I'm right. hundred percent. This is what I'm being told. And, and there's no backing away at all. I'm incredibly like, uh, I think fair and very uh, centered as far as my reporting is concerned, but even I've had people that, you know, friends that won't talk to me suddenly because, apparently they think that I'm liberal and it's, it's just, it's sort of like this sign of the times. It's like where truth itself has been just so repeatedly trashed, targeted, and frankly terrorized that it's just like, it's, it's, I, I have yet to experience a year that's been as difficult to do the job of journalism as this past year. And I hope I never, I, it never gets as bad as, I, I hope that this is rock bottom, frankly, because mm -hmm. it, it's, I have experienced and witnessed and, um, you know, uh, observed just things that it's just like, and, and especially when you put the, the, the death and, and, you know, the pandemic on top of it, mm -hmm. it's, there are so many moments where I am just left feeling so heartbroken and so just like wondering, wondering where are the adults in the room? Mm -hmm. It's actually a good time. We'll switch topics and, and talk about that. Now I want to uh, let everybody know uh, this is the inaugural edition of behind the headlines on WLIW. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. Uh, my co-host is Bill, Bill Sutton, who is our managing editor. And our panelists are David Rattray from the St uh, East Hampton Star, uh, Joe Workmeister from the Times Review Media Group, and uh, Gianna Volpe of WLIW. Uh, and I, let's talk about, you know, it's amazing to me how the events of the last week have dwarfed the, the COVID-19 pandemic, which has reached, uh, you know, the point where we are losing the equivalent of the number of people who died on 9-11 every single day to this disease. And it's just been pushed off of uh, the national consciousness uh, for, for a week or so. Uh, locally, the big issue this week has been access to vaccines. And we've struggled to sort of keep up with how that's going now. David, can you talk a little bit about where we stand on the East end with vaccines and people are really desperate for information, aren't they? They're, I mean, the biggest thing I hear is people really, they, they're, they're willing to be patient, but they'd like to know when, and uh, it's not even a matter of when I think it's how, how are those vaccines going to be delivered? Yeah. And what's fascinating is no one seems to have the answer. Fred Peel in a press release yesterday just sort of blasted the 
supply chain and lack of information in, um, you know, Fred Thiel uh, is a state assemblyman and he's, he's been around, he's usually pretty calm, but the tone he took yesterday, really excoriating the state, um, and I think implicitly the, the county as well for the information vacuum, um, it was, was kind of remarkable. Uh, we are getting calls and emails, people want to know. Uh, we ran a small item um, yesterday online uh, the pediatri- one of the local pediatricians basically asked us to announce to the public, don't call me, I don't know. Um, and it's, it's, that, it's really that crazy. At the same time, there are vaccines trickling into uh, school populations. There are teachers who are getting vaccinated. Um, the, uh, the EMS, uh, you know, um, uh, ambulance company people are getting vaccinated. Um, so it does seem to me like it's, you know, it's, going okay, and this may be heresy to say, but we're only really a couple of weeks into the vaccine distribution in the middle of a pandemic, and it does seem to be getting to the people who need it. And one of the takeaways that, that I've been thinking about, maybe editorializing about is like, you know, if you're in a vulnerable population and you're hungering to get that vaccine, you need to actually think about staying home until the vaccine is is available, you know, and, and not, demanding, um, you know, sort of blood from a stone. It's, it's, um, this is still a moment for people really need to, to follow the protocols that, that brought the New York, um, initial virus outbreak under, under, uh, control. And, and then that's one of the things that seems to me, you know, maybe the product of, of COVID fatigue, but the idea that, that, you know, older people, are indignant that they can't get the vi- vaccine now um, because they want to go to the supermarket and not wear a mask or whatever. I, we're not there yet. And, and I think there's, there's a little bit of, a, um, there's a lot of sort of expect, false expectation. Uh, um, excessive, I don't you know, think, you know, I think people need to understand that, that even with the vaccine, we're going to be wearing masks and practicing social distancing for the rest of the year, probably, because oh. even even if you get the vaccine, you have the ability to still spread. Uh, you can still spread the yeah. disease that way. I think that's something that's that that hasn't been emphasized enough. But it's partly because we don't have that many vaccines on the East End so far. Bill, we did a story this week about that. And I think that this, the, the official line has been that the infrastructure is in place. It's just that we don't have the vaccines yet. I think Fred Thiel's uh, note yesterday calls into question whether or not that's accurate and, and, and also why don't we have the vaccines? Mm-hmm. Well, Everyone in that letter, I, I was reading Denise Civiletti's piece from Riverhead Local last night um, talking about the Suffolk County Community College Eastern Campus being considered as a site for vaccination um, to be, uh, you know, um, we, we posted a story this morning, Peter, Peter Van Skoyk and East Hampton town supervisor has said that he's going to, he's going to set up a site with, with the idea that if we build it, maybe the vaccine will come. And, and I think, you know, that's smart, but is, is that, you know, I mean, <clears throat> is it wishful thinking at, at this point, it does all come down to how, you know, the number of vaccines that, that, that trickle out this way that, you know, people, I think it, it's, it's exacerbated by the fact that New York City is getting so many vaccines, but New York City population is so much higher than 
than than the East End. I, I I agree with 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 David. People need to be patient and and understand that. But I certainly understand the 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 fatigue and the exasperation. And you know, my my mother's uh, thank God is still around, and she's in that she's in that that upper age group, and and she's like, I've been doing this for you know for nine months. I don't know how much more you know how much longer I can do it. And so I understand that. And you know, and and I get that. And people just this was promised as the light at the end of the tunnel in in you know in November and in December we're going to roll out the vaccine. And I think people have visions in their head of of those uh, the, the the movies where the National Guard rolls up in a truck with the vaccines and people just you know crowd the truck and and get the shot. And it's just it's not going to be that way. Even if you're in that that upper tier age group or or whatever, it's going to be months before you get it. And um, and, and that's, you know, it's unfortunate. It would be nice if everybody could just, you know, get it all at once, but you're talking about millions and millions of doses and it's just going to take time. Yeah. I do so wonder, what, you know, what's going to change. Well, once we get into next week, we get a new uh, administration at the federal level, are, you know, are yeah. they going to be able to, you know, how fast can they kind of ramp things up? And, and because until that, you know, distribution increases and we're getting more doses, you know, that's, you know, there's only so much that can be done to distribute when the supply is just not there. So, you know, how and fast is, is it going to take, you know, for a new administration to kind of start ramping things up? You know, I guess we'll think have about to see. how this administration has failed with handling the pandemic from the onset and where the, that, uh, you know, administration, what that like what's going on. You talked about the fact that the impeachment has dwarfed the coronavirus. Uh, pandemic like it's it's really not surprising that the ball has been uh, you know for lack of a better word dropped uh, for the time being it's it's unfortunate it's a total let the meat cake moment but it's it's sort of the where we are in history right now you know, what's the situation on the North Fork and in Riverhead is it is it any different uh, are, are are you seeing vaccines getting out to certain parts of the population and I'm curious whether um, now it's 65 and older are eligible to get vaccines in, immediately. Are you seeing uh, people being able to access vaccines on the North Fork and in Riverhead in a way that we can't down here? Yes, I mean, it seems pretty similar to, you know, what you guys are seeing here, you know, you know uh, the county and state, I guess, whatever, have been able to set up, you know, the testing sites in Riverside at the county center for the COVID tests. And you would expect eventually maybe something like a site like that would be perfect for the vaccines, um, you know, once, um, you know, you know, that can, can, can get up and running, but, you know, we haven't seen that yet. Um, you know, we even trying to, uh, we're trying to figure out, you know, how many of the healthcare workers out here just in the hospitals have gotten it so far. And we, you know, we couldn't even get a real specific number for, you know, Blue County Bay Medical Center, for example, and got more of a generic Northwell health number, um, you know, as they're trying to, you know, as, as we kind of get lost in the fact that we're still trying to get through that 1A of the healthcare workers, where we're not even done with that yet. You know, we still have healthcare workers who haven't gotten uh, under that initial rollout. Uh, so we're still trying to trying to get through that. And, and, you know, we're also trying to look at some of the, in the schools, you know, how, how are they kind of working to distribute or, or, you know, get the teachers. And it seems like they're kind of just on their own. And they're, they're just, you know, the administrations are kind of just saying, you know, well, teachers just have to sign up like it seems seemingly like everyone else and just when they can go get it they get it if they want it and if they don't want it then they don't get it. i don't know you know so it's um we all no, have those no clear plan yeah yeah we all we all have those questions and i think people are clamoring 
uh, for answers to that. And it's difficult to tell people we just don't have those answers at the moment. We're, we're trying. David, what, what, where does all this end up, do you think? Uh, do, you know, if you had to look into a crystal ball here, what, what's, what's it? Do you think the incoming uh, Biden administration and now um, part of his uh, package yesterday included a lot more money? Uh, for response is is and is Fred Thiel rattling the cage in in Albany? Do you think these things might shake loose uh, a little more availability of the vaccine in the next couple of weeks? It's hard to say because I think the distribution mechanism reflects kind of the structure of of government uh, uh, in that you know you've you've got a federal government that can kind of goose it goose production, but ultimately it comes down to the states to figure out how to distribute it. And then, you know, you see, keep stepping down and then the county and a county like Suffolk is this, you know, enormous, you know, 1.48 million people entity. Um, it, you know, so then it sort of, it seems like it's gonna have to, you know, we don't have a Suffolk County Health Clinic really in East Hampton Town anymore, that's been shut down. So, so the chain by which a vaccine reaches an individual is not a terribly strong one when you get down to a local level. And that's why they're talking about putting it on, uh, I think it's the Brentwood campus of Suffolk County Community College. You know, for a, for a, someone in their 70s or 80s to come from Montauk to get vaccinated twice, um, you know, that's, that's a, a tough situation. And, and I think one of the things that this pandemic is showing, and not just on the vaccine, but kind of the, the breakdown in government's ability to meet a challenge. I don't see any effort anywhere in government to deal with the really vulnerable, the vulnerable population, the poorer, the, the Spanish speaking households. And what's fascinating is you see independent organizations like the uh, OLA, which is a, a, a you know, organization in uh, Latino America, I think it's how the name started, but it's really a, a, a stepping in and working to get mobile testing into some of those communities. Another thing where I see this breaking down is, um, you know, you've got a, the virus running rampant in communities where you have multiple families or multiple generations living in houses. There's no level of government right now working on a plan to get people who have the virus into some sort of temporary housing um, and away from these congregate living uh, situations. And so, so I think that, um, and it's kind of a long-winded answer, but I say that I think that private entities are going to have to step in, the, the health care foundations, uh, civic groups to aid in the virus distribution, because I think the, I think local government and county government are completely overmatched. And frankly, state government has almost no presence at that level, except at a regulatory level. It doesn't have a distribution mechanism. So I think we're going to have to look to church groups. I think we're going to have to look to possibly school districts, even library districts. Groups like OLA, healthcare foundations, um, because I don't see government infrastructure being able to meet the distribution challenge. I mean, think about think about the way we get vaccinated for the flu. It has nothing to do with the government. It's private industry. We go to um, CVS or, or or Rite Aid or Walbaums or wherever. I got mine in a Walmart. You know, so private industry is the de the delivery mechanism for the flu vaccine, which is a much smaller scale than this. Government's not going to do it, um, particularly here where we are on the East End so far from from the sort of large scale, gov you know, government with a G. Uh, I think we're kind of on our own. And, and I, 
I hope that that um, you know private industry, businesses, church groups, civic groups begin to figure out how how to how to play a role in not just virus uh, uh, vaccine distribution, but in the humanitarian crisis among our most vulnerable that that's not being met at all. Well, and I think in, a, in addition to that, I mean, we've got to realize, too, that with the vaccine distribution, that, that there's going to be government distribution, and then there's going to be, um, you know, medical distribution, doctor's offices and stuff. And, and you've got to hope that in, in, in Riverhead, that, you know, that Northwell, who, who is, seems to be a big player, um, can, can secure a, a lot of vaccines. And Stony Brook, Southampton, and Southampton, that Stony Brook can, can secure those vaccines and get them into the into the doctor's offices for you know for for my 78 year old mother she's she's not going to go wait in line at, at CVS but you know but if 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 we can get her into her doctor's office and they have some vaccines um, you know and and get her the vaccine that's how she's going to get her vaccine so so we need those big players and I think Northwell's a you know a big player in in the state to you know to step up and and secure those vaccines I think right now they're still worried about about um, you know, vaccinating their their staff and the frontline workers, the medical workers, and that's absolutely understandable and, and necessary. But next step is they've got to, you know, they've got to get those supplies and 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 get it to the people. Okay. So uh, let, let me ask you. The, I just oh, wanted to say that the um, the distribution site that David was talking about it's the Riverhead campus, the Eastern campus. Okay, so it's actually up in Riverhead. Uh, yeah. Is Peter Van Skoyak talking about an East Hampton uh, outlet as well, David? Yes, there's there's some talk about using a, a former school building, um, private school building that the town now owns. It stood vacant as uh, potentially a testing and vaccination center. Um, you know, seems reasonable. Um, so maybe they're starting to shake loose some, some other options. I was going to say, Joe, the one piece of, I, I don't know if we can call it good news, but it's better news, is that we don't talk about the schools quite as much. Uh, mm. The school districts in our region kind of have this thing figured out, right? I mean, it's not that we haven't had issues. We have had flare-ups. And David, uh, you know, East Hampton had a fairly significant flare-up at one point, and, and that's happened. But the school districts, I think, are, are really deserving of a lot more credit for how they've dealt with this crisis. I mean, when you think about having to change how you do everything that you do on the fly while this is happening and, 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 I, and while trying to keep everybody safe. I think, I think that school districts have actually done a pretty remarkable job, Joe. Don't you agree? Yeah. You know, coming into this school year, th there was such a big unknown. I mean, this is obviously unprecedented. We had no idea what was going to happen when we tried to reopen schools with social distancing and uh, cohorts where, uh, you have remote learning one day, you go into school the other day, back to remote learning. I mean, completely unprecedented. And, and while we have seen cases, um, you know, some schools have had to close here and there, you know, more so I think earlier in the year, um, what we haven't really seen is those, that is widespread, um, you know, the virus, uh, spread within the buildings where, um, you know, right. you have you get where you have everyone in one class kind of suddenly got it. And Absolutely. The, the people, the kids, and staff that are getting the virus that are testing positive, they're getting it primarily from, you know, community spread outside the buildings. And so it seems like they're kind of safer in the buildings um, than maybe they are, you know, when they're just out, you know, obviously kids, you can only do so much to kind of, 
you know, keep them, you know, um, you know, from not seeing each other, they're going to eventually, you know, get together on weekends. And um, that's and, actually and, a, a good point, David, the, the outbreak in East Hampton actually had nothing to do with school, right? It happened. That's at a party. right. Um, the, the, you know, the, the contact tracers that we've spoken to say that they, they really don't have any examples of in-school transmission. It's all happening outside the school. And in, in many of the cases, the, the kids are being diagnosed because of interaction with school, with school personnel. So right. to, to Joe's point, it really is, is important to the extent possible that kids are in those settings, um, you know, particularly in the areas where they're living in homes with, with lots of other adults who come and go, who are bringing the virus home and then giving it to the kid. Um, I mean, I, you know, I'm not downplaying the, the potential risk to teachers, but, you know, absolutely, the schools have done an amazing job in adapting. And, um, you know, it's super hard. I mean, remote teaching, um, you know, to call it, you know, remote learning, I think is even a stretch. I mean, this, is, this is remote instruction and you hope you're teaching something. It's really hard. And, you know, if I was wearing a hat, I would tip my hat to, to the district. Absolutely. It feels like it got lost in the shuffle a little bit, but it's, it's something we should recognize that it was a big question going into this pandemic. And I feel like the district's really stepped up uh, and have, have done a great job. Yeah, so it, we have, it, seemed, it seemed like, you know, coming back off that holiday where we had a spike, you know, I think some of the schools were seeing um, some spike in cases. And, you know, that was because, you know, nobody was in school. They were, they, they were home for, you know, a week, two weeks, and then they came back. And now a lot of people, a lot of more uh, students and even some staff members were testing positive. So, you know, I think we all know some of the superintendents we all... were trying to remind, you know, pe- you know, everyone, you know, that they have to continue to follow the guidelines when they're, when they're home. We all should go back to school. Maybe that is the safest <laughs> yeah. place That's the to answer. Be. Yes. I'll just, I can't in school. fit. I don't um, think I can fit into those desks, even at the high school level anymore, <laughs> but uh, that's right. So, so we have a couple of, couple of minutes left and I wonder uh, if we can, use that time to look forward to next week's headlines, what we're working on, uh, and Gianna, what you're gonna be keeping an eye on uh, in local news coming up. Bill, we're, we're turning our attention this week uh, to testing. Uh, we talked about vaccines a bit this week and we'll continue to do that in the coming week, but we're also concerned about the, the availability of testing, correct? Yeah, it, it you know I, it, we we've been we've been kind of uh, gallows humor joking uh, about it. I mean, we you know a few of us had, have had to go get get tests ourselves uh, in the last week because of a close contact situation, and it's just it, it's still a very complicated matter to c- try to go and get a test. And and we you know kind of joked that you know after nine months you should be able to go into your local Seven Eleven or McDonald's and get a test. It should be that easy. But uh, I think we still haven't figured some things out. Yeah, we're going to try and get people some more information about where they can go get uh, tests and what's available. Joe, uh, briefly, what uh, what are you looking for this week? Yeah, I mean, you know, you know one of the things we've seen um, in, in recent years um, in the healthcare field was, um, you know, when our local hospitals, PBMC and Stony Brook, kind of merged with these larger uh, healthcare systems, um, kind of spark, you know, a greater access to healthcare, which, you know, now during a pandemic, we're seeing how crucial that is. And, um, you know, one of the things we have coming this week are some new um, 
a story about some new medical offices coming in Riverhead and Mattituck affiliated with Stony Brook. Um, you know, so, you know, seeing that kind of further expansion and, and providing people out here with, you know, more access to healthcare, you know, kind of a great thing. And, and, you know, seeing these larger healthcare systems kind of, I think, commit more toward the East end is, is great. And, um, you know, so I think, you know, people will definitely be, uh, excited to see some, some more offices opening up out here and, and opportunities to get to some specialty cares and prime primary cares. Um, um, so yeah. Okay. David, real quick, uh, what, what are you working on this week? I, you know, I think the biggest story at the moment is not the, the virus, but uh, the, a tragedy and then a community coming together. A 36-year-old mom was killed by a hit-and-run driver uh, around lunchtime on Wednesday, um, leaving her two children in, in um, pediatric ICU at Stony Brook um, University Hospital. Um, there are two GoFundMes now for, for the surviving family and for funeral expenses. And in just about 24 hours, it, it, the two funds together have raised, I believe, over a hundred thousand dollars. It wow. was, um, it's been an extraordinary. And we're talking, uh, you know, people donating everything from five thousand dollars, you know, down to ten dollars. Um, hundreds of, of people making donations. There's also a this is an Amagansett, a food drive to keep the family so the family don't have, don't have to worry about making meals at the moment and and can deal with caring for the the children. Um, that's going to be the lead story unless something else happens. It's, 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 I don't know. I think maybe during the pandemic, we're all looking for a way to kind of reach out and help. And I, I think this really touched a nerve. No, no question. Gianna, I got about 30 seconds. Whoa, my alarm's going off. Look at that. <laughs> I'm new at this uh, radio thing. So, uh, so this morning I actually started reading Annette Hinkle's um, book about Sag Harbor, which I've had. And it reminded me of her piece and um, the interview with Bob Schaliner. Um, So I'm going to try to get him on, although this is Martin Luther King Jr. Day Monday. Um, we're going to have um, one of the artists from the uh, East End Collected that's happening on the 30th. And uh, Chef Stephen Bogardis, who just won a kitchen crash. Um, and Peggy Lauber from the North Fork uh, Autobahn. So All right. Thanks, Gianna. Okay, so that'll wrap our first edition of Behind, uh, Behind the Headlines. Uh, Joe Workmeister, David Rattray, Gianna Volpe, Bill Sutton, uh, my co-host. Thank you, guys. We'll see you next week. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you.